I would like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to read the last few verses of this uh, chapter in just a few minutes, but I want you to have your Bibles ready so that we can read it together. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 16. We're going to be there in, again, just a couple of minutes. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Uh, I look out at the auditorium, it's very full this morning, it's wonderful. Uh, it's a terrible decision that we sometimes make. Uh, at 10.28, two minutes before the service starts, we look around the room and then we go downstairs to the fellowship hall and we look around there and see w- how the population is and sometimes we make the decision at 10.29 to uh, move everyone downstairs upstairs. It's a terrible decision because at 10.34, the population in this room doubles somehow, miraculously. Not sure how that happens, but we make that decision, and almost every time we make it, I regret it. But um, what it does allow is we set up a few chairs in the back with nice cushions, which are wonderful because it's very good to see Mary Heisey with us this morning. After her broken hip, she has returned to us, and not a prodigal, but a uh, uh, medical calamity. So uh, we're glad that she's here. November is almost over. I'm happy November 2016 is almost over because it has reminded me that sometimes I can be incredibly naive. Uh, Here's why. I was hoping that uh, and expecting that after election day we might get a little bit of a break. We might get a little bit of a break from this constant vitriol. Uh, the, the language that we use to talk and the news reports that we hear don't seem to have changed very much. They haven't improved at all, it doesn't appear to me. In fact, it's gotten worse. Uh, the, the tone hasn't gotten any softer. Uh, the angry words haven't gotten any more infrequent. Uh, it makes me wonder what the next few years are going to hold. Now, I should have known, I, I should have known... Um, This is an election that we had where the first choice of most Americans was none of the above. Um, And with so many people who were voting who were angry or scared, I should have known that it wouldn't end quietly. I remember the song we just sang. In despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, toward uh, I said. I was naive in November... Um, I expect my naivete will carry on into December too. I I look at my calendar and I think about what's happened in previous Decembers. Uh, Even though I look at my calendar and I think about previous Decembers, I still have in my mind this image that there's going to be evenings, two, three, four, where I'm going to be able to sit in my chair in my living room and have no lights on but the glittering Christmas tree And I'm going to be able to sit there and talk sweetly with my wife or reflect or think or read. Um, More likely what's going to happen is that, that I may have a night like that, but I won't be able to sit there for more than five minutes without falling asleep or having to go solve some sort of problem. My optimism sometimes flags. Does your optimism ever flag? I still have hope. About January 3rd, you know what I'm going to be singing? In despair, I bowed my head. There's no peace at home, I said. Right? Yet, if I read what the Apostle Paul wrote 
here, at the end of 2 Thessalonians 3, he expected the lives of his his readers to be marked by peace. That their peace would be continual, that it would be an everyday experience that would happen to them regardless of the circumstances, that they would enjoy peace. We come this morning to to the last few lines of 2 Thessalonians. It's a very traditional ending in the New Testament. You might be tempted to think that it's a bit odd that we're going to spend an entire morning looking at these few sentences. Um, I hope I make a good case for it. I'm hesitant to admit this even as we begin, uh, but a couple weeks ago I was reading Dear Abby in the newspaper. Um, she got a letter from a college freshman. There's a college freshman who wrote it to her and said that she's doing an internship in a nonprofit organization, and her internship involves writing lots of letters, and she's writing more and more and more, more letters. And she wrote Dear Abby for advice on how to write letters well. Apparently, her high school English class had not prepared her for this uh, task. I, I, was, I confess I was a little astounded by the letter for a number of reasons. First one is, does this woman not know about Google? Right? Aren't there at least like 200 legitimate websites and 3,000 illegitimate websites that will tell you how to write a letter? Uh, dear Abby, should have, dear confused letter writer, Google it, right? That's my first thought. My second thought was, what college student reads Dear Abby? Or thinks that in 2016, the best way to get a question answered is to write a newspaper columnist and hope that they'll answer. I had a lot of questions about this. Actually, what happened was, as you read the article, it gave Dear Abby a wonderful opportunity for her to advertise her new book that she's just written about how to write letters. It's great. Uh, when you write a letter, when you write a letter, how do you end that letter? It depends, doesn't it? Depends on who you're writing to. Um, or an email, I suppose. That would be more accurate. Sometimes you write, your friend, comma, and you sign your name. Or, love. In him, sincerely yours. Sometimes when I read letters that are old, centuries old, they sign them at the bottom, your obedient servant. It's great. Several years ago when Don Landis and I were uh, putting together a letter for, about a church meeting, he wanted it to say at the end, serving joyfully together, comma, Don Landis. It's a good way to end a letter. This is Paul, and he's bringing this letter to a close. And they're not throwaway phrases for him. There's things that he has carefully thought about, and the Holy Spirit has inspired these words. Let's look what they say, shall we? 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. We have here encapsulated for us what I want to call this morning the foundation and the fruit of spiritual maturity. The foundation and the fruit of spiritual maturity, especially as it relates to the particular challenges that the Thessalonians faced. This is how we're going to apply what is written in this book. This is the the resources, the foundation for how we're going to apply this book. And then these verses also tell us what will happen when we do the fruit uh, as as we apply this book. And I want to to share with you these uh, morning uh, four elements, four elements that are the foundation and the fruit of spiritual maturity. You'll be able to find them easily. Uh, Here's how I organize them. Let's start. The first one should be clear. It's peace. Peace. Now may the Lord of peace himself 
give you peace at all times and in every way. This is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is called the Lord of Peace. But the Bible connects Jesus and peace all the time in several ways. In Colossians 3, the Bible says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. John 14, Scott read it this morning, Peace I give to you, my peace I give to you, I do not give to you as the world gives. Or Ephesians 2.14, Paul says, Jesus himself is our peace. And then we remember the prophecy of Isaiah, that the Lord Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Now, peace in the Bible especially when it comes from the pen of someone like Paul, a, a formerly, formerly trained Jewish rabbi. It's a broad concept. Shalom in the Old Testament, it means wholeness. Not just the absence of, of war. It's not just the absence of conflict, but um, a peace, it, 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 a wholeness. Positive wholeness and satisfaction and contentment. Peace in the Bible, when we think of shalom, it's a bit like that feeling that you get at the end of the day after you've spent all day raking your lawn and you've got every leaf that was in sight. You woke up early in the morning and there were leaves just everywhere. It was a chaotic mess. And you go out and you rake and you dig under the bushes and, and uh, uh, under the, the your, uh, downspouts and you dig out all of the leaves and you mulch them, burn them, clear them away. Somehow you've moved them away and now the lawn is leafless and you're tired, and you're sore, but you did something really fruitful, and it looks great. You brought wholeness to your lawn, and that sense of, of calm and satisfaction that you have is peace, shalom. Now, you can identify why Paul would wish the Thessalonians peace. These brothers and sisters were experiencing persecution. They were called to persevere in the midst of it. And they were, they were threatened by those Paul called evil and wicked people. We need peace for that. And then there's, there's a, a theological confusion they have about the day of the Lord. And there's some conflict in the church maybe over people who are working really hard and people who aren't working so hard and living off the generosity of others. There's, there's reasons that, that Paul wishes them peace. Now, I wonder this morning, what's most threatening your sense of peace today? What, what is most threatening to your sense of wholeness? I, I see no reason in the text why we're not just as susceptible to, uh, to unpeace as the Thessalonians. Threats abound. There's external things. There's internal things. There's relationship problems. In May 2012, uh, Junior Seau was a... Uh, former star player for the San Diego Chargers, and he uh, took his life. In, uh, he's 43 years old. And people were shocked about it. It, it um, was a surprising event, and it has, been, it has played a prominent role in some of the uh, debates that have, that have taken place about uh, traumatic brain Im, Im, um, injury in the football, National Football League. Uh, Junior say the reason people were shocked by this, he was an outgoing person, he, was, he had a successful career, he was really involved in the community doing uh, lots and lots of charity work. Uh, Rodney Harrison was a teammate of his, he, he was interviewed by Sports Illustrated, listen to what he said about uh, his teammate. He would tell me that the only time he truly felt at peace was when he was with his children or in the surf. He would say to me, when I'm on those waves, it's the greatest feeling. I have no worries, no stress, no problems. I just forget about everything. Junior was always searching for peace. It's a tragic story. I, I, I'm sorry for this man that he never found peace. 
And I even wonder about his understanding of what peace is supposed to look like. True peace, according to him, was not having worries, stress, or problems. I wonder if that's, if that's the case, that peace is impossible, isn't it? This, is a whole letter, this whole letter is about the Thessalonians' worries and stress and problems. If real peace means having none of them, how could Paul ever wish them peace? Peace isn't the absence of worry and stress and problems. It's the confidence that there is a sovereign Lord who is directing the affairs of your life. The text tells us this, that peace comes from Jesus himself. It's a gift. May the Lord of peace himself give you. It is a gift that is meant at all times. Literally, the text just says, through all. Leon Morris says we should translate it continually. May the Lord himself, of peace himself, give you peace continually. Like a, a rock in the stream, that the water is always flowing over it. Peace comes continually at all times and in every way, in all sorts of circumstances, regardless of what you face. This peace is not something that can be conjured or something that is to be created. It's a gift that's to be received, and it comes because of our assurance that Jesus is Lord and He deigns to give Himself peace. I think the word here, peace, is very broad and it's very comprehensive. There's some people who, when they want to think about this passage, uh, want to narrow it down a little bit. Um, and, and they want they want to talk about it just being about the conflict that's in the church between the workers and the idlers. We talked about that last week. That, that's possible. I think Paul has peace more broadly in mind. But for just a minute, let's focus in on this narrow concept here for just a minute. There may be cause for conflict between you and a brother or sister in Christ, but there is to be peace between the two of you. Next week we're going to have the Lord's Supper. We'll participate in communion, and as I often say when uh, we take the Lord's Supper, in order to receive these elements, you should be a follower of Jesus Christ, someone who's trusting in Him for your salvation, and you must be walking in peace with a fellow member of the body of Christ. And that peace between you is a gift from the Lord. Now, how does that happen? Well, the Lord of peace orients us to one another for peace. My grandmother, when she was in her 70s, she took a, a life, a long, a, a, a dream trip for her. She and her friends went to Hawaii. She was thrilled. She brought home from Hawaii some wind chimes. They weren't really wind chimes, they were uh, ceramic pieces of the Hawaiian islands, in the shape of Hawaiian islands, and they were meant to blow in the wind together. And when, when, when you picked them up and held them by the string, all of the Hawaiian islands oriented themselves to each other the way they were supposed to be. And she hung them in her living room over her heat register. She had a heat register in the, the floor, and all winter long the heat would come on, and it would blow those chimes, and they would move in her living room. I can uh, still hear them if I... Think about that sound when the heat would blow. Um, there they were, hanging and, and oriented properly to each other. If you took them off the hook and you set them down, the islands would just fall all over each other and they wouldn't be uh, in any sort of arrangement at all. But it, it's by picking them up that you can actually see their shape and, and see how they are, are arranged toward one another. The Lord Jesus is the Lord of peace in that he has picked us up and he orients us afresh and anew toward one another. 
He orients us toward one another uh, that, in, in such a way that leaves us open to forgiveness and reconciliation. Jesus has oriented us toward us one another by reconciling us first to God. He, he removed the, our sins by the cross by shedding His blood for us. He removes our guilt and the enmity we have between us, between uh, God and, and, and us, His creatures, and between one another. He is the Lord of peace. He Himself is our peace. Now, second here, as we move through this text, I want you to see we move on from peace. We move from God's gift of peace to presence. Presence, His presence with us. Not gifts presence, but His being with us. His presence. Verse uh, uh, 16 says, The Lord be with all of you. Uh, the Lord be with all. This is uh, not an unusual blessing. Uh, it remi- might remind us of the promise that was given to uh, Joseph. Remember, <coughs> his name will be called Emmanuel, for he will save. Uh, he will be God with us. Sometimes this is a cliche. We pray, isn't it? Don't uh, don't we pray? Lord be with all the missionaries. I want to cover everyone. What does it mean here? Paul was praying. That the, Thess- that the Thessalonians would, that the Lord's presence would be at the forefront of their minds. That the reality of His presence by the Holy Spirit would have controlling influence in their lives. That it would make a difference. That it would change how they feel and think about situations. God is with me. Christ is with me. Michael Holmes says that this ending, which so much focuses on the Lord Jesus Himself, is, is wonderfully Christ-centered. It's about Christ's peace and about His presence and about who we'll figure this out in a minute. His grace. This is a fitting end for, for this book. You can't apply and you don't understand the book of Second Thessalonians unless you think about the centrality of the Lord Jesus. Follow me here for just a minute. In chapter 1, verse 7, it, we read that it is for Jesus' coming that we wait. In, in one eight, it is His gospel we obey. In one ten, it is Christ's glory that we will see and share. In two four, it's His enemy that we anticipate. In two five, it's His victory that we hope for. In two thirteen, it's His love we cherish. In two fourteen, it's His encouragement that we express. In three one, it's His word we spread. In three six, it's His commands we heed. In three sixteen, it's His peace we receive and its presence that we enjoy. This book is all about the Lord Jesus and how His presence changes and shapes us. I'm sure you've heard the prayer. It's usually attributed to St. Patrick. Part of it reads this, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lay down, Christ when I sit, Christ when I stand, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. May the Lord be with you all, all of you, every brother and sister. It's, it's, hot, it's odd, I think, that sometimes we speak about the fact that we have to discipline ourselves to remember this. We have to practice the presence of God. You heard that phrase, it's an old one. The Lord Jesus is as present as oxygen and we are more dependent on Him than the air we breathe. I think one of the reasons that the Lord calls us, the Bible calls us as believers to gather together regularly is to remind one another of the weighty and comforting presence of Christ 
we really do center our lives around him. And when we pray for each other and we talk about our own spiritual lives with one another, we're, we're helping each other see again the presence of Christ. Christ is here. He's with us. He's for us. He hears us. May the Lord be with you all. Now the third element here that is the foundation and fruit of spiritual maturity is truth. Truth. That's the emphasis of verse 17, although the word truth doesn't appear in there. Let me explain. Um, you'll see this, I think, soon. Paul writes this, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. Most ancient letters were, were uh, uh, dictated to a scribe. You could hire a scribe. You'd go onto the marketplace and find a scribe who would write letters for you. The presumption was, uh, two of them, one that, that writing a nice, neat letter and thinking about what you want to say is too hard to do at the same time. And they didn't have word processors. So uh, you could think about what you wanted to say and someone else would focus on the neatness of the letters. Uh, or uh, the presumption, too, is that many people wouldn't be able to write, so they'd need somebody to write for them. And this person is called either a scribe, or here's the wonderful ancient word we use sometimes to describe this, an amanuensis. That's great. Uh, Paul's amanuensis in Romans, uh, identifies himself in Romans 16. Look what Romans 16.22 says. It says, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. So Tertius in Romans finally gets a little line for himself. It's also common, we have ancient letters that are like this, it is also common for the ancient uh, writer to say something at the end of his letters. To, to write in his own handwriting something there, to make his mark at the end of his letter. Um, we have copies of letters, and there's beautiful handwriting for, for all of it except the last two lines that are kind of just a scribble, clearly a change in handwriting. Now notice two things here. Paul says, um, this is the distinguishing mark in all of my letters. We believe that Second Thessalonians was the third letter that Paul wrote. Uh, that we have in the New Testament. That seems kind of odd that he would say, all of my letters say this. How many? Well, three. Seems a little odd. Maybe uh, it's likely Paul wrote other letters, maybe to the Ephesians or the Colossians or other letters of the Thessalonians that we don't have. The early church and the Holy Spirit did not con uh, uh, gather them together as part of the New Testament canon. That's, that's likely. But more importantly here, Paul says... His signature is the guarantee that this letter is legitimately from him. He's concerned about the legitimacy of it. This is my hand. This is how I write. You can know that this letter is really from me. This is the truth. He was concerned about this, I think, because back in chapter 2, verse 2, remember he had written about letters that had supposedly come from him. People were writing letters in his name. Paul says, no, this is my letter, and I am, I'm, here's my handwriting at the end to prove that to you. Paul wants the Thessalonians to have in their hands the apostolic truth from an apostle. He expected them to follow this book, to shape their lives around this book, and therefore it had to be legitimate, real, we believe that this book contains the truth about the Lord Jesus, that it's the authoritative and complete Word of God. And, if it's, and it is sufficient for us as a congregation to center our lives around. Occasionally I hear uh, comments from people, criticism, uh, from people who say, well, it's just foolish, it's foolish to base your life on such an old book. 
It's an outdated document. This is a, the Bible is barely holding together. It's, it's like a creaky old floorboard in an old house or an old barn that if you step on it the wrong way, you're going to fall through. There's just, it's made of dust, and, and if you blow too hard, it's going to completely disintegrate. Uh, but if this book is from God, its relevance never ceases. It's the living word of the living God. If it is what we say it is, it only makes sense that we would pour ourselves over it. I mentioned the congregational meeting last week. Uh, this is one of the reasons I, I'm grateful for this congregation. There is an insistence in our church that we read and study the Bible. That we figure out what it means and how it applies. I mentioned last Sunday about how I was interviewed by a third grade class. They asked me all kinds of questions about what it means to be a pastor and what I like about being a pastor. And they said to me, um, where do you like to preach? Um, and I said, my favorite place to preach, without a doubt, is in my own church. It's because um, the people there want to hear what the Bible says and they care about what the Bible says. And I... My, my prayer is that this, we would grow in this, that there would be a development about this, that it would, that it would uh, be a greater yearning in our congregation, that we would be not just hearers of the word, but doers of it also, that we would esteem the word like Job did, more, than, uh, more necessary for our lives than our daily bread. Because truth is foundational to our spiritual maturity. Now finally here in verse 18, verse 18 there is there, and it speaks to us of grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It's not surprising that we would, would end here. This is how Paul often ended his letters. The only difference actually between this letter and how it ends and First Thessalonians is the word all. First Thessalonians says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And Second Thessalonians ends, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It means basically the same thing, except... I wonder if Paul is a little bit conscious of the fact that he's been kind of direct. Remember chapter 3, he was really going after them. And I wonder if, if he wants to encourage them. Grace for everybody. Grace for all of you. Even the ones that I, I had in my sights a few minutes ago. Grace for you all. Grace is God's kindness to us in Jesus, and it's the daily need of every one of us. By, by God's grace, we have the strength to obey this book. We have the courage to represent Him before others. We have the perseverance to pray. We have the humility to confess our sins. And we receive forgiveness when we fail by God's grace. You never outgrow this. You never move on from this. It's by the kindness of God that we're going to apply any of this book that we have read. And yet within us there's this impulse. Oh, isn't there? There's this impulse, this anti-grace impulse. <laughs> Chuck Swindoll writes about a time that for Christmas one year, uh, there was a man in his church... Uh, he lived in Southern California, remember this? Uh, a man in his church offered to come, and as a Christmas gift for his pastor, he was going to clean all of the windows in his house, inside and out. How comfortable would you be receiving that kind of gift? They call you and they say, I'm coming over to your house, um, and I'm going to wash your windows today. Uh, you sit here, I don't want you to touch anything, you sit here and I'm going to wash your windows. Would you enjoy that? Uh, most of you uh, would squirm, I think. Um, I should at least help you. Let me, I'll just change the water for you every now and then. Or, um, 
you know, you came over here, and I don't want you to spend all your day here, so I'll do the inside, you do the outside. Can I, can I at least bring you a glass of lemonade or something? Because you, you came to do this? There's this, within us, especially within incompetent people like you are, there's this anti-grace impulse that is, it makes it very hard to receive. There's that song that we sing, the servant song. Brother, sister, let me serve you. Let me be as Christ to you. Pray that I may have the grace to let you be my servant too. It's very easy sometimes for us to talk about serving other people. It's very difficult at times for us to talk about being served and receiving grace. The grace of God is how you started as a Christian. For by grace you are saved, rescued, forgiven for your sins. Through faith. It's not by your works. It's not by your good accomplishments. It's not by getting up uh, and doing things. It's the gift of God. No one can boast about this because it's the gift of God. It's where you start. Remember, faith is need focused in the right direction. I need forgiveness and mercy and I am aiming it toward the God that receives through Jesus our substitute uh, sinners. And then he gives them forgiveness and life. You're not a Christian without that sort of dependence upon God. And that grace is where your life will end. As a trophy of God's grace for all eternity on display, look at God's amazing grace in this person's life. Paul's wish is that, that uh, uh, this is what we would receive, God's grace. I know that probably most of you in this room, many of you, if not most of you, have already started your Christmas shopping. It's the gift-giving season. Um, If you haven't started it all, maybe you've thought about it at least a little bit. Some of you don't like what you see, don't like it, because what you see primarily in December is greed. All you see is greed. You don't like it. Or you just feel obligated. Or Christmas just stretches your already thin budget. There's no biblical requirement that anybody give or receive a gift on December 25th. It's not a command. I'm not endorsing it. But there's a wonder involved in it. Isn't there? There is an other-centeredness. At least I hope. Hope for you it's not just obligation. There is an other-centeredness, a thoughtfulness. When you bring a gift to someone, you say to them, I have thought about you, and and I have selected something that I hope will bring you joy. These are the gifts that the Lord Jesus himself brings. He has thought of us, and he brings to us peace. He is with us in his presence. He has delivered to us his truth, and he washes and washes and washes us with his grace. Let us receive these gifts with gladness. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, Father, we come before you this morning, and uh, this has been a a full week for many of us in this room. We have um, been involved in festive events, and we do thank you for these uh, seasons and moments in our uh, culture and our family lives when we can um, rest or at least give ourselves fully to different and new things. Lord, we are thankful to you this morning, though, uh, for these reminders of old and simple things that you have given to us. Peace and grace and truth 
and the promise of your great presence. Lord, there are men and women in our congregation who need peace because of the various challenges that they're facing right now. Maybe for some this was a week uh, that reminded them of their, uh, the family members that they miss or the relationships that are broken. Lord, I thank you that your peace is not dependent on uh, our circumstances or our timing. And we pray that you would enable us, by your kindness, to receive these great gifts from you. Oh, may there be fruitfulness of the peace and truth and presence and grace of the Lord Jesus in our congregation. We want to do this because it's for his coming that we wait. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.